Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Royal Retros, the king of throwbacks. Hey, if you're looking for teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, but you'd like to remember them in high quality jersey or uniform format. Hey, some of those teams were legendary. Some of them were disasters, but they all live at Royal Retros. Check them out. RoyalRetros.com. Use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Check them out now. And now check out this episode. Growing up in Miami, it was a rough start. We were living in a horrible area. The town was called Little Haiti. Almost 80, 90% of the population in that area were Haitians. But you know what, I had a mom who was very supportive. I had a sister who became second mom to us because mom and dad split up. Our mom was amazing. She's been our inspiration raising eight kids all by herself. And so working two jobs all the time, I have to kind of step in and help with the younger ones. To get her to the point where she was, it took so much hard work because we lived in a place where people don't really believe in kids like us having opportunities. So I was always focusing on where lies a light. How am I going to get out of this environment and make something of myself? At the age of 13, I hear this announcement, anyone interested in girls basketball, come out and try out. And it dawned on me that, wow, I should go do that. Coach Burke instilled fundamentals in us, um, not just myself, but all the other Haitian girls, and we became a powerhouse. The gym would be sold out. You'd have a section that's literally, I know it's illegal, but betting on Marie. And it was just always so amazing to see how skillful she was at the game and how focused she was and when she's on that court. It's a different person. It just became something where I said to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to use sport as a vehicle to capitalize off a scholarship. And that just opened everything up for me. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hey there, everybody. It's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats, still available, the curious little podcast that is, of course, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And we thank you for finding us, however you have done so. Welcome to the proceedings. And uh, we are really intrigued with uh, a wonderful conversation uh, this week with our guest, Marie Ferdinand Harris, uh, and a, a look back at the early days of the WNBA. And, and women's basketball is certainly a place where we've spent some time. Lord knows we've gone back to the old WBL, if you remember that, with a couple of great conversations with uh, uh, the great Molly Kasmer, uh, Nay Bolin, uh, some of those early years. Uh, but I think people uh, seem to sort of forget that the WNBA, uh, while it's having more than a moment, as is women's sports, uh, perhaps uh, long overdue, you could make the argument, um, it's already 27 years old. It started back in... Um, uh, in the mid 1990s, and uh, people forget that uh, you know, as the NBA was uh, sort of seeding uh, this league to get the uh, women's game sort of at another level, um, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of um, shakiness with some of these franchises and and that kind of stuff. And that, of course, gets our uh, our interest <laughs> heightened because we uh, were just fascinated by various teams and, and league situations and, and whatnot that have come and gone. And uh, the WNBA in the early years uh, has not um, disappointed, shall we say. And uh, anytime I find an opportunity to 
uh, go into uh, any league with uh, teams that uh, have not uh, sort of lived on or perhaps do live on, but we just haven't uh, sort of understood uh, how and from where they came. Uh, we are uh, we are all ears. And um, hence was the case uh, with uh, our new pal, Marie Ferdinand Harris, who, uh, if you're a fan of the early uh, WNBA, was one of its early stars. Uh, her playing career was about a 10, 11 year journey between 2001 and uh, 2011. And for um, those professional years, this, uh, she was a, a standout at LSU. And as you heard in that clip there, uh, discovered the game of basketball midway through her high school career in the uh, little Haiti section of, uh, of Miami, not necessarily the most uh, nurturing of environments, uh, that location. But as you heard there uh, with her sister and herself, uh, you know, her family, obviously a big part of uh, her strength and her coach at that time uh, at high school, at Edison High School in Miami, in the uh, little uh, Haiti area. Uh, she got the bug, shall we say. And boy, was she uh, a, a really good bug in in all respects. She was a, a standout at LSU, uh, was a first round pick in 2001 in the WNBA draft, eighth overall. And um, we get into her story, her meteor uh, meteoric rise into the realm of arguably a then-fledgling uh, women's professional basketball career. And uh, two, in particular, teams uh, that ca catch our fancy are the, remember these, the Utah Stars, two Zs, please, uh, in the uh, first first number of years, uh, who then moved uh, in the middle of uh, her um, her time there to San Antonio to become the San Antonio Silver Stars. No Zs there, just S-T-A-R-S, but San Antonio Silver Stars. And then they became the San Antonio Stars, right? So uh, Connection obviously was trying to be made with the uh, San Antonio Spurs of the NBA at the time. Uh, the Utah Stars with the two Zs obviously was a, a forced <laughs> convention to, uh, I guess, sort of at least have a similar uh, ending to the uh, the Jazz of the NBA there. And uh, as we know, the early years of the WNBA, and still today, although not exclusively, uh, there is that sort of uh, uh, investment and relationship, and oftentimes co-ownership uh, between the uh, the male W, excuse me, the male NBA and the female WNBA uh, teams and league, uh, part of that league, right? Um, and also, actually, that clip that you heard comes from some looks back from the current Las Vegas Aces. And why is that? Well, Marie never played for the Aces uh, in particular. She actually wound up uh, uh, ending her career between uh, in the late uh, aughts uh, with the L.A. Sparks and then in 2011, uh, her last season with the uh, Phoenix Mercury. But the Utah Stars, which begat the San Antonio Silver Stars, which then became the San Antonio Stars, wound up moving to Las Vegas in 2018 to become the Las Vegas Aces. And as we love to hear in our conversations, the Aces are actually looking back at their history, relatively tortured and 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 uh, uh, you know left and right and uh, and sideways. Uh, but the Utah Stars, the San Antonio Silver Stars, the San Antonio Stars, all part of that legacy. As is the playing days, the bulk of the playing days of our guest this week, Marie Ferdinand Harris, with that hyphen between, please, if you're uh, if you're scoring at home. And uh, it's a wonderful conversation. And by the way, it's a lot more than just uh, memories of teams come and gone. Uh, as you'll hear, 
in our conversation. Marie's story is uh, inspirational on a very personal level. She lost her firstborn son to a tragic accident uh, in his teenage years. Uh, she has a uh, foundation uh, that uh, uh, is committed to his memory and helping other uh, kids out there, especially those who are disadvantaged, uh, either from broken homes or other tragic uh, situations. Uh, that uh, website is called BeLikeCJ.org, and that's in memory of and the support of and, and the affirmation of uh, the late Cedric C.J. Harris, uh, her first son. So uh, a tragedy, uh, some fun and frivolity, uh, and lots of stuff in between. This is a fascinating, wonderful, and inspirational conversation that we had with uh, Marie just a couple of weeks back. And uh, yes, we would be remiss to not tell you uh, that there is a, a great book that uh, we highly recommend that you read that encompasses not only that, there's even a picture of her on the cover in her Utah Stars jersey as real proof that this, 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 this franchise actually existed. The book is called Transformed, The Winning Side of Losing. We highly recommend it. You can find it uh, off of our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 339 with Marie. Uh, but you can also uh, get this book directly, and I think you will after listening to this conversation, uh, from her website at marieferdinand.com. That's M-A-R-I-E, Marie Ferdinand, F-E-R-D-I-N-A-N-D, Ferdinand, marieferdinand.com. And uh, you can uh, uh, get an autographed uh, copy of that uh that book from her as well there. And um, uh, either way, uh, you'll proverbially and uh, realistically be glad you did. And uh, hopefully you'll also be glad that you did listen to the entirety of this uh, lovely chat that we had just a few weeks back. We appreciate Marie making the time for us. And let's present that conversation to you now, shall we? Uh, as always, please enjoy. You had some pretty humble beginnings uh, in school, and basketball was pretty much a a, 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 a divining rod for you as you uh, as you grew up. Maybe a little background about where you kind of started and how basketball came into your life in the beginning. Yes, well, I was originally born and raised in Miami, Florida. Parents of parents both my parents were immigrants, moved to a horrible area in Miami, Florida called Little Haiti. And it's not the best place to raise a family, but it was the best that my parents could do at the time, being that, you know, they had very little, very little resources. Um, so the area we lived in were the most crime, invest crime, drugs, you, all those bad things that you can think of. Um, poor school districts, low performing schools. You're destined to fail. I mean, there's no hope in that area. You know, it's, it's very, you're you're supposed to fail. You know, it was a dark place, but although I was in a dark place, I was always focusing on where lies a light. You know, how do I escape this environment? How do I make something more for myself? How do I make, create my own story, write my own story? And for me, it didn't happen until the age of 13. I heard this announcement and went interested in basketball. And I went on out and tried out, and um, that just literally changed the trajectory of my life. I end up teaming up with this coach called um, John Burke, who was 
this, they call him Mr. Fundamentals. Now, Coach Burke was all about teaching the fundamentals, which was amazing because at that time I loved basketball, but I still didn't have the fundamentals. So it was a good divine intervention moment for me. And Coach Crow was also that coach that believed in year-round development, meaning you play every day, you practice every day, that's how you get better. And that's what I did. I literally bought into his system. And every day I was practicing, practicing. And within a year, I went from no one knowing who I was to becoming one of the most sought after guards that all these universities wanted to give a scholarship to by my sophomore year in high school. So it dawned on me that, wow, I'm going to use sports as a vehicle to capture this um, college tuition and get that paid off and get a scholarship and, and be an example to my younger sisters and show them that college can be a reality. So that's kind of how it all got started for me, you know, and also in the midst of doing that, we changed the culture of the program. It became more of a positive school because we were dominating on the court. We were selling out. The gym was selling out. You know, we just became the talk of the town. Um, wow. They were just like, how are all these Haitians winning all these games? But it came through work ethic and putting in time in the gym and and, and getting good grades at the same time. So the uh, whole before you go further, a cu couple of questions. You, you, you mentioned you you have some you had siblings, yes, at the time and, and now. Yes. Okay. Yes. So where, where were you? Total. Where were you in the family tree there? I'm literally in the middle. Okay. So that, that explains that explains a lot, right? Middle children, you know. Yes. Um, uh, and, and I guess the question is on the on the on the hoops front, who found mm -hmm. who? the coach? Find you, or did you find the coach? And and how did that sort of get nurtured? Because <laughs> you must have had. I mean. You say you're interested in basketball, but if you're uh -huh. not really picking up the ball until you're age 13, right? That sounds pretty amazing. Late. How quickly? Well, wait, yeah. Maybe. Yes. Yes. It was pretty late in the game. But like I said, when I started and when I picked it up, I never put it down. Literally every day I was working on my game. And that's how I was able to make up so much ground so fast because it was like year round, nonstop, seven days a week. Just that was the mindset of the coach. You know, he told us to get better. You got to put in time every day. So when we couldn't get in the gym, he would load us up in his minivan and take us in his to a nearby playground and continue our fundamental development. And this was a coach who was not even our coach. He was literally the security guard at the school who would volunteer his time and teach us fundamentals after school. Um, so it was just I, I, that's why I call it my divine intervention, because teaming up with someone who loved to teach the game. And here's a woman who now fell in love with the game. So I was able to learn from a coach who just loved to teach. So so this is the uh, Miami Edison High School, right? Were they the Red Raiders yes. at the time? Yes, yes. The Miami Red Edison Red Raiders. Okay, exactly. so, so all right. So what was it about the team and basketball, or maybe both at the time, maybe the coach? Uh, what, what, uh, what was the driving force? Because clearly you developed fairly quickly, a, a passion mm -hmm. for one or all of those things. And mm -hmm. um, was it the, the team and the camaraderie? Was it the fact that you had other, uh, it sounds like Haitian immigrant uh, uh, classmates that maybe were, it was a bonding experience? Was it the sport itself, the athleticism? Was it you being, uh, you know, uh, uh, being seen and noticed on campus and all the, you know, mm -hmm. all the attention that that, what was it that kind of drove you to kind of go all in on this? Um, I think it's just, um, there was nothing to do. And when you're raised as a Haitian little girl, 
really it's just go to school and come back home. School, um, school is very important to um, my parents and making sure you come straight home after school is even more important because we didn't live in a safe area. So for us, I just wanted to be able to have something else to do. And I begged my mom to be able to stay after to practice, you know, and she would allow us to stay if it was something positive. So as I continued to excel, you know, she became more of, okay, you know what, this could be something good. It'll lead to school. Okay, great. But it was really just something to do, you know, because there was nothing else to do in that area. It was school and go back home. You didn't want to be out in the streets in that type of environment. Okay, so this is uh, roughly the early to mid '90s, right? And yes, yes. And when, when do you when are you conscious of the fact that you're not just good, but you're like really good and standing out uh, mm -hmm. amongst not only your team, probably the city, but but even on the state level, you're garnering mm -hmm. a lot of attention. Um, when yeah. do you kind of does that ever go to your head? When do you kind of know that? Um, does that fuel you, or or do you instill fear in you? You know what. I didn't even really even, it almost seemed like I love playing so much that I didn't even realize like all that was happening because I was so into playing. Like I was so, like it was such a passion of mine <clears throat> that I didn't even recognize or it didn't made, it didn't come to me not till later on in life, you know, the awards and wow, girl, you're a player of the year. You're a player of the decade. It was, it was such a big passion that I could have just, literally played and, and just, I don't care what comes out of it. I just want to play. It wasn't until I believe Coach Gunner and Sue Gunner and Pokey Chapman came to our home and was wanting to offer me a scholarship to LSU. I think that's when it became more real. Like, oh my gosh, like, wow, like this is serious business. Like there's more to it than just playing. Wow. I think that's when it became more reality when I got college coaches to come to my home for the first time. So you knew you were, okay. So I, did you, when did you know you were being recruited? Because that before you perform the home visit, right? Probably comes visits to the, mm -hmm. to the gym and to games and that kind of stuff. And you might or might not know that they're there, right? Mm hmm Yes. Um, I started being recruited, I believe my junior year in high school, junior, senior year. Um, but before that point, I was just playing to have fun. Like, I just enjoyed playing the game. It was, I, I didn't really care if you got an award or not. I just wanted to play. I can even remember after we won our first championship, it was like, okay, this is it. That's it. You just won the championship. There's no more games. There's no more playing. Like, okay, like, man, I don't want to win a championship because, you know, it stops, you know? So for me, it, it was really weird. I just had this love affair with basketball to where, you know, it just didn't, like, I just love to play. And it was like that even when I got drafted into the WBA. Like, you know, when they handed us our first check, I'm like, I didn't even, like, the check was just a check. I just wanted to play. And I'm like, wow, you get paid to play? They're going to pay me to play? You know, it was one of those things where I would have done it for free because that's how passionate and how much I love the game. All right. So uh, one of the themes of, of your book, I'm not going to give it away. Obviously, we'll promote the heck out of it and all that kind of stuff. But um, mm -hmm. is uh, maybe what you're kind of uh, sort of maybe we're sort of skating into here. Um, I, 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 when I read the description and, and sort of uh, some of the early sort of drafts of this, you're mm -hmm. um, I don't want to call it tunnel vision. Right. But it, it's clear that you're developing a a passion uh, uh, for for basketball, obviously going to the next level collegiately. I can't imagine. I mean, that's like, I mean, 
we know it today, truly being now very close to professional with NIL and stuff. But yeah, I think any you know anybody with college students in their family knows that Uh if they're playing Division One sports, right? That's a that's a full time endeavor. And in the in the late nineties, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that that it. I guess the question is, how much did you have to either willingly or unwillingly devote to basketball Mm -hmm. to the exclusion of all other stuff? Like hard to be a student, right? When you're Mm -hmm. a top tier, highly recruited and at a big program, kind of like LSU basketball player. Yeah. Yeah. So um, your question is basically how did I manage doing both? Yeah. I mean, you're obviously, obviously got talent, right. And people, and and the talent obviously is going to the next level. Um, Yes. Assuming that not only did you still enjoy the process, but it became maybe your reason for being as college went along mm-hmm. or did it? Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and and like I told you before, you know, I became so obsessed with basketball and having that single minded focus and just seeing the tree and never just seeing the forest. You know, that cost me when I retired, when I retired from sports. I felt like I had developed as a player, but I was neglected as a person. The person never got, I mean, I got the best trainers, the best coaches. I went to the best camp, shooting camp, position camp, um, whatever kind of camp. I did all of them. I got the best of the best when it comes as developing the athlete, but the person was left behind. Um, so when I retired, I felt like I'd gotten my master in sport but I was just entering middle school when it comes to the person skills, the people skills. And, and, and that's why today I go around, I speak to colleges, to athletes in high school, college pros, you know, you can do both, you know, as athletes, you want to be the best, you are a fierce competitor, but you don't realize that, Hey, you can compete and still make friends and be about relationship building. So we don't really never know how to do both. So we choose one, we become single-minded focus. And then we just live in the gym. We don't take advantage of the resources that's that's right in our face. And I always share this example of Nick Saban. You know, when I played at LSU, I was there with Nick Saban. And I remember one time during practice, Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher were all there, their whole entire staff. And they're, you know, having their power hour exercise basketball game. And I come in early to get some shots up and I can't get on the floor because they're on the floor. So I'm sitting there with a frown on my face, like, can these old guys get off the floor? I'm trying to get my <laughs> shots. But I never had that confidence, nor the growth mindset, nor the awareness to say, hey, go introduce yourself to Nick Saban. Go develop a relationship. Go talk to Jimbo Fisher. You know, how great would it have been to have these two people in my contact when I retired to look for opportunities? But these are the things that athletes miss out on because we focus on just, you know, the basketball, the sport, and we don't don't see the the full picture. We don't know how to maximize our, our platform. And my story is that, you know, I just never knew how to do both. Growing up, my parents didn't really have much of anything to put us in boys and girls club, YMCAs. I literally was in my home. If I wasn't in a basketball practice, I was at the house. So I felt like I never even learned confidence early on. I didn't really have like effective communication skills. I didn't know the power of relationship building. Those things was never taught. And nor was I interested in it because I was I was in love with basketball. And right now basketball was feeding me, you know, and, 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 and when I retired, I realized that, oh my gosh, I had neglected the person. I never 
put time in developing the person aside from the player. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm working on courses where while the player is being developed, the person is also being developed. So they both can, you know, be equally developed at the same time. So, so that's actually, that's very profound, right? Because, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and a hard lesson to kind of learn because in essence, you're describing really in the college part of it thus far, we'll get to the, the, the WNBA in a second, but um, it's your, it's your, uh, it's your lifeline and also your anchor, if you will, uh, to, mm -hmm. to the detriment, perhaps uh, after the fact, right? I mean, it's, it's a lament that we've heard and continue to hear and, and arguably something that you can help uh, evolve and change and, and improve mm -hmm. is the. It I'm sounds like a lament. It's yeah. It sounds like a lament to the outsider, right? Like, oh, it sounds like a pretty darn good life, right? Professional mm -hmm. athlete, you know, the big bucks and the fame and the all that kind of all this endorsements mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But but what what I'm hearing is, it, it can be a pretty much a vacuum. And once mm -hmm. it's done, and by the way, you're you're probably always aware that you're one injury away from it truly being done, right? Mm -hmm. That that's got to instill a lot of fear into, oh my God, now like the real world, what, what do I do now? I, I think a lot of athletes on the pro level, especially when their careers are cut short, unlike yourself, which you were lucky to have a, a, a long career uh, mm -hmm. in, on the playing court, um, it almost feels like their self-worth is tied mm -hmm. up in that. And it, that goes, once that goes away, yeah. their, their personality and the rest of their life essentially goes very much into question. Yes, yes. And and how did you put it? You said the, the lifeline and there was something else. And, and an anchor, you know, uh, to yeah. the detriment, right? You know, a, 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 a weight, so to speak, that yes. essentially drags you down. Yes, yes. And the bigger of a star that you are, the more neglected as a person you will be because you don't do anything for yourself. Everyone does everything for you. So you never develop those skills because you have people around wanting to please you. Pretty you know? easy to so get used skills. to, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Until people stop cheering for you and those people are not around anymore. And now you have to go and develop the person. Okay. Well, I, well I, let me, let's segue into the WNBA. So I'm assuming at LSU, obviously you were a standout player there. Mm -hmm. um, the league itself hadn't started until I guess roughly when you were starting college, I guess the WNBA was yeah. coming, right. Yes. How much, yes. how much, how much did you know of the WNBA and maybe even previous attempts at women's professional basketball in this country and how much did you just not know and care about and was you were focused on a collegiate career and mm -hmm. were you even thinking pro at at any point in your LSU career to be honest um even in high school I always thought okay I'm going to be the first woman to play in the NBA because that's all there was we didn't even know that there would be a WNBA it wasn't until I graduated high school 97 is when the WNBA came about but all along, it was like, oh, I'm going to be the first woman to play in the NBA, you know. But of course, once it became a reality, the WNBA, that definitely became a goal of mine, is to make it to the WNBA. Um, it, You know, that was the era of, of course, the Cheryl Stroops, the Rebecca Lobos. And you started to see women playing professional sports. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, I'll have to go to the NBA that we have a league of our own. I'm going to work even harder because I want to get there. But um, but before that, it was always, man, I want to be the first woman in the NBA. That was my whole goal before the WNBA came. There, there was there is and was at the time. Right. There was some level mm -hmm. of professional opportunities abroad. Right. I mean, you were playing. Yes. You overseas. Were playing for the U.S. national yes. team in in, mm -hmm. in the um, 
uh, in the the Taipei competition, the uh, the Jones Cup. Yes, so you probably had yes. some knowledge of uh, potentially professional opportunities. Yeah. I guess I, I guess though it it had to be a pretty amazing development that the NBA had mm-hmm. funded and finally launched the next generation, if you will, women's professional league. It had to be a huge yeah. shot in the arm for all of you. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. It was an, it was very exciting because, you know, people, I mean, you go overseas, but you don't really want to go overseas. You know what I mean? You're away from your family. You're like 15 hours away. You're out of the country. You're in a country that's very different. You're driving on the wrong side of the world, of the road. It's just very, no one wants to go overseas, but it was the only option we had. So when the WNBA came, came about, we were very grateful to have an option, you know, to be able to stay in the States and play, you know, and, and at least if you want, you can go overseas, but you can, you know, have the option to just play in the States. Yeah. And we hear the same with, with, uh, women's, uh, uh, professional soccer players, the same, yeah. same dynamic. And now actually with hockey as well, it's just, it's an, I'll get your opinions about where the state of uh, women's sports is near, near the end of our check. Cause I'm sure you've got some insights and stuff, but it, it's a whole, I mean, just even from, you know, some 20, some odd 30 years ago, I mean, it's just it, the dramatic changes and the opportunities mm-hmm. and being able to do it at home. Right. Which I think is yeah. an amazing opportunity, amazing. That, you know, even just a few years prior to you getting into going to college and playing wasn't even a thing. No, it really wasn't. You know, the landscape of women's sport has just changed. And I mean, for the better, you know, would have thought women's sport would be, I mean, just blooming the way it is. I mean, I sat here and watched the other day, South Carolina versus LSU play on ESPN. And they were literally hosting like college game day in Baton Rouge. I mean, these tickets and I'm an LSU alumni. I, when we played there, we literally had curtains that we would put down because the seats were all empty and they were trying to disguise that. You know, our tickets were like, you could get a ticket to our game for about 15 bucks, come watch the girls play. And this is when I played. And to see South Carolina and LSU play just, what, two weeks ago, and the game tickets were $4,000 a ticket. You know, it just, I was just astonished by just the growth of the game, you know, and I felt like it was a sold out arena. You had college game day there, ESP and all the media hype throughout the week. I just felt like no matter who wins this game tonight, there's no losers because women's basketball won tonight because this is what it should have been all along. So I see it's climbing, you know, who know who, I mean, it's going to only get better. So I'm just grateful that, you know, women are finally getting the recognition that it's ultimately deserved, you know, because it's a good product. I mean, when people give it a chance and they watch women's basketball, oh, there's no turning back. They become fans, season ticket holders. So I'm I'm just proud of how far and how much the women game has evolved. No, I, I agree. I, and I want to get into the WNBA uh, stops in, uh, in one second. But let me ask you this, though. How much do the, do the uh, these kids today recognize... I mean, you're you're hardly old, right? I mean, you're 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 barely, you know, you're not even you're not even AARP yes. uh, material yet. So, you know, you've got that going for you. But my point is, yes. that, I mean, you, you still are. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say. I guess pioneers is a right is the right word. It's not like you know yeah. we're about the old WBL back in the night in the late seventies. We've had a few conversations yes. about that. But do do people? Current players, both on the pro level and at the collegiate level now, especially given just the sheer 
velocity of growth in just even the last five to six years? Do people, mm-hmm. are they recognizing, you know, kind of the the steps that you guys kind of helped build? Because, I mean, you're describing not too long ago, you know, a, a collegiate experience, and I'm sure some of your first WNBA mm-hmm. experiences, it, it wasn't all that, right? It was still yes. early days and still kind of brick by brick, kind of building the foundation for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you get any recognition for that yet? Um, I do. I do. You know, just... A week ago, I was in New York, and my reason for being in New York was for this um, exclusive WNBA screening um, that they were showing. They have a new documentary series on um, the WNBA. It's called Shattered Glass. And within that um, documentary, they're sharing the stories of the the lifestyle or the, the life of a WNBA player. And they also have one former player um, on that show as well, who is Cheryl Swoops. And and just hearing the current players, the Brianna Stewarts, the Jockwell Jones, and even Neka Agumake, hearing these ladies talk about how, you know, there's no them without us and sharing how, but there, but we're so still, there's still more work to do, but they're sharing how, you know, they're honoring people who paved the way and they're giving acknowledgement to um, the Lisa Leslie's, the Cynthia Coopers, you know, the Marie Ferdinand's, you know, all these women who have worked so hard, whether it's overseas or in the ABL or, you know what I mean, that have came before them to where now they're in position to make more money, more than we ever did when we played. Yeah. So, and I think that that documentary, Shattered Glass, um, they're, they're, they're acknowledging the women who have paved the way for sure. And they do. And I, just like I, I, I do different appearances with some of the younger players and it's always a thank you, man. We wouldn't have this, you know, without the hard work, the blood, the sweat that you guys have put on. So there, there are a lot of appreciative women out there, current players. No, that's great. And frankly, that 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 should be the case. And that, we've seen it with other sports and stuff where it has taken a longer, much longer time for that mm-hmm. sort of recognition and that sort yeah. of that through line to kind of be recognized. All right. I, I want to get into some of your 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 WNBA adventures. Um, when did you know that uh, you had a shot at this league? And when then mm-hmm. also did you know that, my gosh, you you, you were going to be a first rounder? Oh, well, I knew just like I shared, and it's crazy how it works out, but I mean, it's truly how my mind works. I didn't really start thinking college, like, like literally like, like college basketball, like, wow, college basketball, because I was so into just playing the game until Sue Gunner and Pokey Chapman came to my apartment. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, like college basketball is real. That's a place I can truly go and get a degree and and continue my development with, with basketball. And it was the same thing when I was in college at LSU. It wasn't until I saw Dan Hughes walk into our practice to come scout me. And I'm and the coaches are like, we have a WMA scout looking at you today at practice. And I'm like, what? You know, so it became very real when I started getting WMA coaches come to our practice to watch me practice. <laughs> All right. So you got drafted. And, uh, you, you were what? Eight, at the set, You were the eighth pick, right? Of the. Uh, yes. And, 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 and let me share a story even about Please. that. 
And and here I am, you know, and at the time Miami Soul has, they have a team. There's a team, they have a franchise going there and it's talk saying, oh, they're going to be drafting Marie Ferdinand, a local star in Miami. You know, this would be a great fit. And here I am excited about that. I mean, which, who doesn't want to play in front of their family, their friends, their fans? So I thought, oh, Miami is where I'm going. You know, that's what my agents were saying, word on the street was saying. So I'm pumped up, getting ready to hear my name get called to go to Miami. And long behold, the eighth pick came, well, the fifth pick came around and Miami Soul went with Ruth Raleigh at the time. And I was crushed because I'm thinking, oh, I thought I was going to Miami. And I go from Miami to being drafted to Utah. And I'm just like, what a different, like what a different, like a whole different scenario here. You go from Palm Beaches to like, mountains, you know, and I'm just like, okay, Utah, like what's in Utah, <laughs> you know, but it it became the perfect move for me. When I said I was able to go into Utah and have an immediate impact on a team surrounded by great, great veterans by um, Jennifer AZ and Natalie Williams and Adrian Goodson. I mean, really good, solid veterans that took me under their wing and mentored me and taught me me the game and and I was able to blossom as a rookie you know at that team all along the Miami franchise folded and then all the players had to get dispersed dispersed into other um WBA franchise so it worked out for the best yeah you didn't know that at the time but sure it's it mm -hmm. seems like that would have been a logical marketing and yeah. family kind of move for you to, to be with the soul. but yeah you know life has a strange way of of making these things happen what um this was the stars were one of the two Z's, please, if you're counting. Yes. Um, uh, were one of the eight original uh, teams. And um, how much did you know about the organization uh, at the time? Um, I'm assuming the Jazz were part of the mixture in terms of the ownership. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yes, they were. Was that a good it thing, was... a helpful thing? Was there cross pollination? Did they not care? Uh, yeah. um... Graded was the. You know, you know, ticket sales you know, and the, the, the support system and all that stuff. You know, we we pretty much average. Like our attendance was really, really good. We just had an owner that wasn't really a big WBA fan, to be honest. You know, and each year he became less of a fan. I think if we had a different owner, maybe, a, you know, the Stars had their own owner ownership team. I think the team would have stayed in Utah because the fans love Utah stars. Like we had, we drew good, a good I mean, we were on the top, top five with attendance in the WBA. So it was just unfortunate that we had an owner that really wasn't a big diehard WBA fan. And each year it got, he got less interested. So the team was sold to San Antonio. Um, when, yeah, when did you when did time. you find when did you and your teammates find that out? Like was there a rumor that that mm -hmm. that a move might happen or you know were, um, a fan base or were you getting any inklings of that? We didn't know, not throughout the season. It wasn't until the off season we found out that the team was gonna be selling, was gonna be sold to um a franchise um in San Antonio. So it was more during our off season we found out about the news, which was sad because we had we had came to love Utah. You know, we had great, like I said, a great fan base, you know, and we had a great team. We loved the culture there. We loved the, you know, I mean, it was just such a beautiful city, Salt Lake City. We we enjoyed the environment. We just, 
we enjoyed Utah. So it was very heartbreaking to hear that the team was being sold to San Antonio. Lots of tears, but we know it's business. So we kind of just was professional about it and just got ready for San Antonio. All right, what's this? Royal Retros. All right, longtime fans of this show may remember a little site that we used to promote the heck out of called 503 Sports. Well, not only are they still around, they are now known as Royal Retros. RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. And like the name implies, the highest quality jerseys and hats and apparel and all kinds of stuff related to various teams and leagues and situations that we love to obsess about here on this show. And I'm talking about getting jerseys with your name and number on the back of them, customized to your liking for the WHA or or old NHL hockey teams that may not exist anymore. Uh, Perhaps it's a federal league team from way back or a Negro league team. Maybe you're just enamored with the various football leagues of the past, like the Arena League or the All-American Football Conference or the original UFL, United Football League. Yes, you can get all of those teams uh, in all kinds of colors, away jerseys, home jerseys. You want to put your name on them. You want to make sure you got the official patch on the side. All of those things and more at RoyalRetros.com. And I'm not kidding, friends. You go there. You want to find that Cleveland Barons jersey to wear and show. Hey, you're maybe a Colorado Avalanche uh, fan and you want to represent the Quebec Nordiques from where they came uh, in the arena to show your heritage and your love and knowledge of the history of that franchise, you can do that and more. And I'm talking across football and basketball and baseball and hockey and you name it, all kinds of great stuff for you to find and buy and purchase and wear proudly from Royal Retros. That's RoyalRetros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. We want to save you money from all these great things. Uh, And here's that code. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, promo code SEATS. For all of your purchases at RoyalRetros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. We love them. And our friend Destin Alameda there out in Portland, Oregon, we appreciate his and their sponsorship of this show. And now, back to our conversation. And your impressions of San Antonio, had you ever been there before? Did you like the new name? Stars, this time with an S and, and silver in front of it. And then, I mean, yes. um, you get, you, you, right, it's a business, but it's still you. It's a life. It's your, I, I don't know what your, you know, your your uh, family situation was at the time. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, you got to move, right? And and it's a different location. Couldn't be more diametrically different than Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I I thought it was a great move. You know, San Antonio is a bigger city. Well, not bigger city, but San, San Antonio was a city that, you know, pushed really hard for a WBA franchise. They And they always say it's best to be wanted, not tolerated. So I felt like we were coming somewhere where, hey, they want us here, you know, and they truly supported the women's um basketball there in San Antonio from the very jump. You know, we had fans coming to our practices. I mean, showing up at all our games. We The fan engagement was huge, you know? So um, I thought it was a great move because like I said, they wanted us and they fought so badly to get a franchise. 
and the San and to be and to team up with the Spurs sports and entertainment brand, such reputable brand that was also a plus too because of how they conduct business. Just very first class organization. Everything they did with the Spurs, you know, they funneled it and did it with the Stars. So we were treated like professionals on and off the court. And you know, you you were blessed to have an eleven, ten or eleven year career uh, mm -hmm. in the WNBA, which is you know that's. Uh, that's a that's a pretty strong and mm -hmm. uh, uh, consistent uh, uh, playing career, and and obviously yes. well across all of it. Um, yeah. how, about, how about injuries? How about the various cities that you played in? The quality mm -hmm. of play. Uh, did you have any yeah. ports of call that you enjoyed visiting or not? Uh, even the home games. Uh, mm -hmm. What of the WNBA experience? Did you? Was it a grind? I got to think it was with a compressed schedule. Um, in the summer, right. Yeah, I always, even when I go out and speak to teams and I always share that I played 12 years in the WNBA and my greatest years came with my experience in Los Angeles because those three years I went from being the star player to now finding myself on a bench for the first time of my life. I this was is on the bench. This is with the Sparks, right, of LA? This, is with the, this was with the Sparks. And I feel like those were my greater years because I was introduced to service. For once in my life, I learned how to, you know, hand water to my teammates, cheer for others while they're having success, you know, learn what preparation is, learn the value of one minute in the game. I was playing with Candace Parker and Lisa Leslie and Tina Thompson and Tisha Pinachero and Alicia Milton. I mean, literally had five Olympians on the team and here I am on the bench and I had to learn how do I make a productive production on the bench? How do I maximize one minute in the game? You know, how do I turn garbage time into an opportunity time? And it literally changed my whole perspective. It made me this ultimate teammate, this true professional. It made me who I am today, but I'm not who I am today without going through that experience. A lot of athletes shy away from being on the bench. Everyone wants to be in a game, you know, but there's valuable lessons to be learned on the bench. Around you, this league, how um, how uh, stable did you think uh, it was? I think the the aughts were uh, kind of, a uh, I want to say up and down, but it sort of had its moments of success and expansion and then also some you know, some rumblings of stability and, and hell, you even had like, you know, some, some very successful franchises moving around, um, which didn't mm -hmm. sort of imply stability, like the Houston Comets, for example, being taken mm -hmm. over. I mean, um, how did you feel about this as, um, as an enterprise? Did you feel like it was stable? It was growing? Did you have any concerns? Um, did you worry about the, the future of the league or did you feel like it was just growing pains and, and that kind of stuff? No checks, um, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, 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 I looked at it as growing pains because you would see a team drop out. Okay, this year, this team folded, you know, and then <clears throat> there'd be times we'd wake up and we wouldn't know, oh, where are we practicing? Okay, we're going to go to a high school gym, a college gym, you know, so little things like that would make you think like, wow, are we going to make it? Are we truly going to make it? You know? So of course those years it was challenging and I'm sure many of the WNBA players, you know, were thinking, wow, like definitely what's going to happen with the state of the league is not really great because one or two teams was always, you know, ceasing operation. Um, and then the condition of, you know, having to room, you know, two players per room, have a roommate, you know, on the road, you can't have your own 
hotel room you're sharing. So a lot of different things that you just was seeing, you know, it was like you question like how stable are we, you know, but as the years kept going, we started to, you know, the, the league started to take a, a change for the, for the best. You know, we started getting more people involved, more sponsorship dollars started rolling in and we started to see, you know, we started to get expansion. Now we started to bring in team opposed to losing team. They were finding ways to expand on what we were having opposed to dropping. So the outlook for players were definitely optimistic because, you know, and now we were able to, <clears throat> you know, have, have our own rooms, you know, little things that we were seeing that was now changing. It made us realize that, you know what, that we have a chance to really stay here, stick around for many more years. And now we're in our 27th year and no one really thought we'd be here in for 27 years, but um, it's only going to get better. And I think there's so many people now that want to invest in women's basketball. So I think the league is in great hands um, and the sky's the limit now. Okay, I do want to ask that one little asterisk of this, right? So, do you remember uh, any away games against the Liberty when you were playing? Uh -huh. And specifically, do you remember playing any of those games at Radio City Music Hall? Um, you know what? I do because those are the ones where I believe you had to take a, like a flight of stairs. Yeah, Is this the because arena? this is a little asterisk. This was I think it was two thousand four, right? Uh, Madison Square Garden was hosting the uh, Republican National Convention, so the Liberty oh. had to play games at Radio City Music yes, Hall. And yes, I yes. vividly remember some pictures. I, I wish I had gone to a game. I mean, you were literally <laughs> playing on the stage of Radio City Music Hall with the yes, Rockets, the, the yes, thing every year. which was which That's was gotta be very, bizarre. very bizarre. I mean, we couldn't really even focus on the game because we just couldn't believe we were literally like playing on the stage like it was just so abnormal you know but that's the life of a WBA player you know when you play in the WBA like you're literally trained to like hey expect anything to happen you don't know so you're not super surprised but I mean that radio city and that stage that was a, that was quite bizarre I think that one right there takes the cake for everything that we've had to experience in the early eight, early stages of the league um, and uh, any, any favorite uh, locations, any, any favorite cities that, that you enjoyed? I mean, obviously San Antonio mm -hmm. and then LA and then, and then I think you ended your career in Phoenix, right? With the yes, in, Mercury, right? Yes, so, with the Mercury. Yes. Uh, how about, how about uh, uh, opponents or homes or courts or any other sort of standout sort of, uh, favorites or memories of, of, of your various travels, or maybe frankly, places that you didn't like, or you didn't think were going to live on too, mm -hmm. too much longer. Um, you yeah. know, it, can't, it couldn't have been all roses and, and perfume every, uh, every port of call. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed actually Sacramento. You know, there was a franchise in Sacramento called the Sacramento Monarchs. And I love going there because the atmosphere was always electric. I mean, they average a sold out pretty much every game. Like that was a great environment to play in. It was always just an hostile environment, but so electric at the same time. I was very surprised that the team didn't make it because the fan attendance was so good. Well, that, so that, was, they were, that was in there. the old Arco Arena, right? Which was sort of very yes, intimate. Yes. And frankly, it was, I guess, originally, mm -hmm. it was kind of a, a makeshift arena for when the yeah. Kings arrived back in the day and they still hadn't yes. found a more modern place. So I'm guessing it was cozy. And that also kind of maybe helped with the intimacy and maybe the fan base. Mm -hmm. no? 
Yes, yes, definitely. That definitely um, played a role in it for sure. Um, not just myself, a lot of my teammates, you know, that was one of the games that was circled like, yeah, Sacramento, because they not only had a tough team, a good team with Yolanda Griffith and Tisha Penichero, but I mean, just the fan support was just amazing to see that, you know, with the women's game at that juncture of the league to see such great support from the fans, diehard supporters. So for me, that was always a fun one to go to Sacramento and, and try to get a good road win in Sacramento. Okay. So as, as you were winding down your career and you're recognizing that uh, you're, you're a, a role player, a support player, you're, you're not, you know, starting as much, you're not sort of the, but, but, and recognizing that gear shift, if you will, as a professional, when do you kind of think and know that the, end of the career is is approaching did, did you if you will were you able to leave on your own terms was it kind of dictated mm -hmm. to you and more interestingly what did you think when that time presented itself what did you think uh -huh. you were going to do next were you going to stay in the game or was it really a question mark because you hadn't given it much thought because of what we talked about earlier yeah. Um, well, I knew it would be my last year, but at the same time, I really didn't want to announce it. I'm very private, very reserved. I kind of wanted, I'm more like the Tim Duncan. I kind of wanted to do it very quietly. Um, and that's what I did. And But when I did it, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't start thinking about it until I knew I had stopped playing. Like, okay, what's next? Um, but luckily, I had gotten into running my own academy down in San Antonio. Um, it had me a AAU club team with high school to elementary team that I did for a very long time, but just jumped into that. I feel like, you know what? I can always lean on my expertise. I understood basketball very well and I love to develop players. So I jumped into that, but I didn't know I was going to retire that year. Well, I knew, but I didn't want to make an announcement. I wanted to do it quietly. And for yourself, what did you think you would sort of segue into? Did you ever consider coaching? Did you ever consider mm -hmm. a front office type of stuff? Did you ever consider yeah. other aspects of the game that you had essentially given your life to for the 20 years prior? Or did you mm -hmm. truly not have any idea? I, I get the sense that, again, themes from the book, some that we talked about. Um, yeah. I, you Maybe you think you're prepared, but maybe you kind of weren't. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I didn't even give it much thought. You know, that's the sad thing about it. Like, you know, when you know you're going to retire, you know, you have the awareness, the growth mindset to start. Hey, let me start talking to the team owner in the GM and let me share with them that, you know, I'm go I'm getting ready to do this and I want to look at some post-athletic opportunities. But that light bulb for me never went off. I didn't even think to talk to GM, coach. I mean, I barely even told my agent until the last minute. You know, it was one of those things where I just thought, you know what, I'll just retire and just figure it out once I'm done. But but that's why in the book, I share my whole story on so many lost opportunities, you know, how I didn't maximize my platform and, you know, a message to athletes on how to not do what I did. And I pretty much give them a blue uh, uh, a blueprint on how they should do it. Um, but it's sad to see that, you know, the game you gave everything to, you not come out with something else right immediately after, whether it's, you know, being a coach or being a part of the front office and doing something. But that just don't, 
for some players, that light never that light bulb never go off. You're not just you're not thinking about that until you literally don't have the uniform no more. You're not reporting to a team and it become reality. And you're like, okay, what am I doing now? And then all of a sudden, you're thinking of the lost opportunities because now you're not wearing that jersey. So it's not as easy to go pick up the phone and call your coach, call your GM. You know, I mean, you're there focused on the next star, you know, so you make your job difficult when you don't pre-plan for these things. And you have all the opportunities to do it because there are people who will help you. They'll want, they probably want you to be a part of the front office, be a part of the coaching staff. But a lot of times I just think athletes just don't have that, that growth mindset to, really prepare for that. You know, there's some of us that does that, that do it well, like Swin Cash and Tamika Catchings and even Becky Hammond. I think some of them think about the game after the game. And most of us, we're only thinking about the game right now. So, but that's all part of the course that I want to create, which is to help athletes win in life, not just in sport, be grooming that person. So that way, post-athletic opportunities, there's plethora of them because you're well-rounded and you have that awareness to start now, work with the GM now, go talk to your, your team owners. Let's establish a relationship so that when your career is over, you can walk into a, you know, you can go pro in something else. So does that also include things like financial management and, and, and personal finance and all that kind of stuff? Cause I, you hear those sad and classic stories of, of, of generations mm-hmm. past of pro athletes who, you know, made all the money and then lost all the money and then it's lost. Then the career was over and, yeah, if only, right? They had known earlier uh, on. Does that include that kind of stuff too? I, I would imagine it's oh, holistic in your your approach, right? Yeah, it's definitely a holistic development program focusing on confidence, communication, networking, relationships, the importance of relationships, because that's one thing I see athletes struggle with. They don't know how to be a competitor, but at the same time, be a friend to your opponents, you know, so they pick one, they pick to be competitors, you know, so it's about relationship building. It's about financial literacy. That's something that, you know, we struggle with, you know, managing money, having a good relationship with money. You know, we don't come from money. So a lot of time when we get it, we don't manage it correctly. So financial literacy is a part of that, you know, professionalism. So just trying to create a program that can really help athletes win in life, not just in the sport that they play. All right. One, I won't call it final, but sort of one huge part of this story that we haven't talked about yet is the fact is during your playing career, you became a mom. You got married and you had had three children during the course of your, I believe it was all during the course of your playing days, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, yes, yes. Yes. And and I think that goes, that goes, I want to say unnoticed, but that's kind of a, that's, that's superwoman right there, right? I mean, to to be, to 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 get married, yes. start a family, and have a top level professional playing career at the same time, while being a pioneer, if you will, for 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 a league that was future was not guaranteed. Um, yeah, that's a lot. And 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 how do you keep it all together when you're doing that? Well. Um... You learn time management. <laughs> you have a good support team, which I had. And, you know, you just managed. I mean, I can, yeah, you manage it. I remember when I had my first son, I remember having to go overseas and I had to leave him at two months. I left all the way and went to Poland. 
and he stayed behind with my mom. And at the time, I believe Cedric was still playing my husband and, and little CJ was left at home and I was all the way miles away from home in Poland out of all places. I'm just thinking like, what in the world am I doing here? But that's the life of a women professional athlete, you know, especially in basketball, you don't make so much money to where you can just live off your WBA salary. You have to supplement. So going overseas, 80 to 90% of the girls are overseas during the off season. And when I had CJ, that was a commitment I had to do. I had to be away for like six long months from two, from having my two month, my, my son, and he was only two months old. So you just learn, you know, mental toughness. You focus on, hey, you're not going to have these opportunities long. You try to maximize them. And you just rely on your support team. You rely on FaceTime and, and Skype and all these things that they had at the time. And, you know, you make the most of it and you survive while you can. Yeah, I think we sort of forget that that the uh, uh, the uh, is still today, but but certainly back in the day and again, all that long ago. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. pl playing in the off season in Europe and other places, right. To make a living full time at the professional yeah. basketball thing. Yep. Yep. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough, and, and that's why, you know, once you watch, and I don't know if you guys are into documentaries, but once you watch the latest WBA documentary called Shattered Glass, you understand the life of a WNBA player because you have women in there having to leave and, you know, go overseas and leave their family and be gone for eight whole months. And once they get back, they have to jump right into the WBA season and they're literally playing year round. You know, it becomes very, um, it could be very depressing sometimes, but it's, you're only going to be able to maximize those, um, those contracts that you're able to get overseas. It's not, it's not going to last long. So a lot of players try to capitalize. Given that, and the the growth of the league, and and the women's game, even at the, the the collegiate level and NIL and all the monies, all the rising tide, shall we say, women's sports, pro sports, and 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 the money behind it, private equity now and all that. Um, do you see uh, a scenario relatively soon where players won't have to do that off season? thing to supplement their incomes and the WNBA could be, or, or is that mm -hmm. still kind of a, a ways away or maybe the other stuff, like yeah. the other supplemental stuff, like, you know, there are more, shall we say, ancillary opportunities like endorsements and, uh, you know, business startup kinds of things and other business type of ventures that could supplement, if you will, the WNBA salary. I guess the question in there is when will the WNBA salary thing be enough so that players can rela relax, <laughs> rest, if you will, physically during the yeah. off, a true off season versus having to be constantly on the hamster wheel? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's happening now. It's happening now. The salaries are up a lot of, and now they're working. They've actually started their first off season program called PMAs, which is called player marketing agreements where they have right now, I believe it's 15 women who are allowed to stay and not go overseas. And they're going to pay these women to, to stay at their, um, their team, never market their in and do appearances um, for the whole entire off season. And they're going to pay them, you know, kind of what they're being paid overseas to just stay in, um, stay local. So they're realizing that, you know, the, how hard it is for women to play year round and how we don't want to, we don't want to do that. 
So the WBA has now agreed to have PMAs, which is player marketing agreements to where players are now being able to stay home and get paid to do appearances. It's only 20, it's only about 15, 20 girls now, but I believe every year it's just going to go up. It's going to increase. So that's a huge plus for a lot of players, you know, because it's a start. It's a start of something special. And, and I got to think, too, with the increased media coverage, right, with the, the, the Scripps mm -hmm. networks or sorry, the Ion network owned by Scripps um, yeah. and, and the, 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 uh, the, the bigger uh, funnel, if you will, of television exposure and coverage and stuff. There's probably more opportunities for uh, on-air commentary and all the ancillary uh, programming, shall we say, that, uh, yeah. that along with that, too. So this, this seems to be like there will be more opportunities uh, for, for that as well. Arenas. Uh, uh, you know, facilities, uh, the training facility. Seems like there's a lot. There's more of an industry, if you will, that's that's now backing up the the yeah. league and, and what could come from it. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree anymore. That is exactly what's happening. There's just the there's just people who wants to they want to be a part of the WBA now. They want to help women sports. They're all in. And it's something beautiful to see because, you know, we're finally arriving at the table, you know, where before people didn't really want to, um, they didn't really, it was hard to get those sponsorship dollars, but now people want to work with us. They're coming to us, whereas we begging them to be a part of our league. So it's definitely changing um, for the good. And it's something very, it's special to see that. Okay, I, I do want to do one uh, important gear shift here before we uh, before we let you go. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do want to focus on on uh, uh, what you're doing uh, both professionally, but also um, with your organization. I mean, obviously, uh, part of your story is the the tragic uh, loss of mm -hmm. your first son, um, yes. and and the organization that you have built uh, in his honor since then. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a little bit of background about sort of. The uh, the impetus for that, what what the organization does, and importantly how how people who are listening could can be part of it as well, uh, because I know that's a very big part of your life as well. It should be, um, and, and making it making it good for others that may not have as much or even a hint of what you had growing up. Yeah, um, and it's actually the Be Like CJ Foundation, and it's near and dear to our hearts because it's, you know, a foundation to keep our son CJ, keep his legacy alive. You know, most people who know CJ, they know he was a high caliber athlete, but what made CJ special was his character and how he treated people. Although a star player, CJ wanted no part of the star treatment. This kid as humble as humble can be, very kind-hearted. Just had a heart for the broken, the kids who were special needs, the kids who didn't have clothes, the kids who just didn't have a friend. CJ gravitated to those kids. He just cared more for those kids who needed a friend, and that's CJ. You know, so his whole foundation, we're all about our mission is just to inspire children and family nationwide by uniting people of different backgrounds through services and sports program. You know, we have this thing on our website that says become an ultimate teammate, trying to get more people to be an ultimate teammate in life. You know, just going around the whole kindness message to be like CJ, be kind, be humble, be respectful. You can be a bad, a badass athlete, but still treat people with kindness, still love. CJ love. No, it doesn't matter if he had all these accolades at the age of 
14, eighth grade, CJ already had a scholarship full ride to LSU for both, for both football and baseball. But CJ didn't even want us to tell his teammates. He was so humble. He begged us not to share this news with people, you know, because he never wanted to make himself feel more important than his teammates. CJ was the kid that would go on his basketball team and try to hurry up and score 60 points if he could, because he <laughs> understood if the team got up big, his his teammates who sat on the bench, they could get a chance to play. CJ just had a heart. He just had a heart for the broken and we want to keep his legacy alive. We want to keep that kindness going. So through his foundation, we're always doing plethora of events and different um, sporting events, um, kindness campaigns in schools. Cedric and I, we go and speak at schools, speaking the, the message of being humble, being an ultimate teammate in life, being like CJ. So if you guys want to learn more about the Be Like CJ Foundation, you can go to BeLikeCJ.org and see all the amazing things we're doing and even support us. And in my book, Transform, um, The Winning Side of Losing, I share about CJ. I share his life. I share who he was. And I share of all the amazing things that we're doing through his foundation. So I'm excited about the opportunity to do even more. Within two years, we've already done so much. And we're looking to broaden our reach and partner with more people, the junior NBA, the NFL youth platform, the Major League Baseball youth platform. So CJ is here and his legacy is continuing on forever. It's so heartwarming to see so many kids wear his shirt, be like CJ's shirt, his wristband. He has such a huge following. He's a special kid and, and there's so many kids who still hold him just right in their heart. They just love CJ. And so that's pretty much what I do, run his day-to-day -day operation and everything be like CJ. And I'm now getting ready to go on a speaker circuit, promoting my book, Transform, and, and, and just sharing my triumphant field journey on becoming a trailblazer and understanding how even in loss, you're still victorious. So there's a lot in the horizon and I'm looking forward to the future. That's a that's a, a beautiful tribute and 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 uh, a, a lasting um, uh, uh, memory that I think is it's uh, inspirational uh, to say the mm -hmm. least. Um, uh, and we'll promote the heck out of all of those things before and after the the as we edit this together and all that social media. And Thank stuff. you. Rest assured Thank on that. Thank you. Um, but let oh, me. Oh, I okay, appreciate so, that. Oh yeah. Too. Well, so let me. But I'm not going to let you go though. For one, until I got one last sort of question into you. I, I'm really. Okay. We've kind of danced around this. I'm really okay. intrigued about your viewpoint of where professional basketball for women lives right now, what the state of it, uh, the college game, uh, women's sports generally, uh, pride, uh, a little wistfulness that maybe some of the dollars that some of these young ladies are getting now maybe <laughs> wasn't happening as 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 robustly in the in the in the early 2000s maybe than uh, than they are today uh -huh. um future all of it how do you feel about the state of things for women's sports and and and, and basketball in particular given your journey and mm -hmm. uh, and your legacy contributions shall we say uh-huh. Oh, I think women's basketball is in great hands. You know, I think, I mean, women are, we are here to stay. And it was very difficult to say that once upon a time. But as you see the sponsored dollars going up, you see the TV deals are coming in. They're not a struggle anymore. We're not asking. People are asking us now. That's a sign of sustainability. 
you know? So I think it's in great hands. We have a core group of talented young women playing the game the right way and are very good. And college basketball is is making the WNBA even more better because you have talented athletes maneuvering over to the WNBA. The Caitlin Clarks are now, she's getting ready to go into WNBA. And that same following is gonna follow her in the WNBA which is going to be great for the WNBA. So I just think we're in a great we're in a great place. You know, it's exciting to be a women basketball player these days. Um the growth is is just continuing to grow. The salaries are going up. Like I said, we're getting TV deals, we're getting sponsorships. You know, we're now we're working on charter flights, you know, that that's becoming a reality where before it wasn't a reality to do charter. You know, so I see the growth. I see the how optimistic it is now to literally dare the dream to have a lot of things that we've been hoping, but now these things are becoming a reality. So it's an exciting time for the WBA, and I think it's here to stay for sure. All right, and here's the last question: When, when, when the Ring of Honor or the 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 uh, however teams celebrate their legacies and 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 reunions and all that kind of stuff, right? This is sort of a legacy mm-hmm. question. Um. Um, where will your banner go once when you're honored? Uh, let's assume that's the case. Uh, I th- yeah. think it's, it's very much in the realm of possibility. Um, mm-hmm. Is does it reside with the with the Las Vegas franchise? Given that the, I guess the the the, the linear heritage of this team from Utah to San Antonio is in in Las Vegas, right? Um, do, mm-hmm. uh, or 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 do you not care about that, or do you think of it as a, as a completely different franchise? Um, I would definitely think it would probably if I if not that I would pick, but I would think that's the team I spent the most years with. Sure. You know, I spent almost six years in San Antonio and then I lived there for 12 years. So there's a lot of relationships, a lot of a lot of family, friends, a lot happened in San Antonio. So I would think um, the franchise now in Las Vegas. So I would think, yes, Las Vegas would probably be um, the safe place to say, to be honest. <laughs> well, you are the sparks of the mercury. I I just, it, it's kind of a silly question, but it's actually, we obsess about that kind of stuff because it's like, okay, where does that history live, right? So all those stats from their, what, eight seasons there between Utah and San Antonio, um, they yes. have them somewhere. And I guess historically yes. or literally, they kind of reside with the, with the Las Vegas franchise now, but um, I it's just curious. I'll tell you what, why don't you call me the minute you get some kind of invitation for that kind of, uh, that kind of honor. And then we'll, we'll, you know, Do we'll you... have another debate about uh, where, where that legacy should live. Okay. <laughs> Do you get a vote in, in those kind of <laughs> things happening? Sure. Why not? <laughs> All right. Our sincere thanks to Marie for that lovely, wonderful, and inspiring conversation. Uh, The book that you must get is called Transformed, The Winning Side of Losing. It is by our guest this week, Marie Ferdinand Harris. It is available wherever fine books are found. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to uh, frequent your local bookseller and have them uh, secure a copy for you uh, and help keep uh, that local independent bookstore thriving in your neighborhood. You can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 339 with Marie, and you'll find a convenient link or two to the Amazon uh, pathway. We'll get a couple of shekels of referral love. Thank you very much. Uh, and the book is available in either paperback or Kindle format. Um, but even more interestingly, and perhaps more personally, 
uh, you can go to Marie's website and get a signed, uh, personalized copy for yourself. Uh, and that way, and that website is marieferdinand.com. I'll spell it for you. It's M-A-R-I-E. Ferdinand is F-E-R-D-I-N-A-N-D. marieferdinand.com. Just uh, tell her that you heard uh, her and me on this here little show, and uh, I'm sure she'll uh, be more than happy uh, to uh, commemorate that event, <laughs> as well as sign a personal copy for you. Um, and also, I, I must shout out uh, the uh, organization that she and her husband run in memory of their um, departed son, Cedric uh, Harris, otherwise known as CJ. Uh, it is the uh, Be Like CJ Foundation. And like the name implies, the website address is Be Like CJ. That's B-E-L-I-K-E-C-J.org. Be Like CJ.org. Wonderful organization. They do lots of great stuff. Uh, for kids and families in various uh, challenging situations uh, in need of hope, uh, encouragement, and um, embodying, I guess, you could say, the uh, the spirit that still lives on uh, in, uh, in young CJ that um, Marie and her husband uh, continue to um, turn into positivism. Uh, we could use a whole lot more of that in, uh, in the world today, and um, we are... Uh, Really excited and happy and ecstatic to shine a spotlight on that and her and her husband's efforts on that front. Uh, like I said before, uh, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That is the locus for uh, our little show, all the various episodes we've ever done. Feel free and please uh, find, uh, subscribe, follow us wherever you get podcasts. Make sure that you uh, get that feed uh, up and running and ready so that you get every single a drop of audio goodness that we send your way each and every week. We don't want you to miss a thing. Uh, you can send us email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can follow us on various socials. You'll find us at X at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Facebook and threads at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And um, of course, you can find Jerry Payne somewhere in the Atlanta metropolitan area, trying to keep up with our uh, ridiculous requests for him each and every week with our uh, various attempts at trying to create a show here. Uh, it's uh, been more than seven years now, and he hasn't run Screaming yet, although I do hear stories once in a while. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, he is in the, the suburbs of Atlanta, our uh, tip of the cap to you once again, as always, fine, sir. Thank you, of course, for listening. Uh, lots of good stuff coming your way in the weeks and months ahead. We appreciate all of your support, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, of course, please do take care of yourselves. 